runs our sort of U.S. sales data at Silao Report, doing a really kick-butt job um, at that over the past couple months, ever since he approached us for questions about internship. Really happy to have him on board. Um, and Caleb, you came across the Israeli Air Force AR-7, or the, the Armlight AR-7 Israeli Air Force Service, IAF Service. Can you tell us, you know, What's what spiked your interest in this? Why was it, it was interesting, and why was it you know some of the more intricacies here? And just we'll just give it a go back and forth over the next couple of minutes. Nothing too in depth. Um, just sort of talking about it for people who aren't aware of the of the AR seven. Yeah, first of all, just thank you, Miles, for that. It, it's always it's been a pleasure to work for you and uh, get my get my toes in the world of uh, you know academic firearms research. With the AR-7, it was really, it was through the U.S. sales data work that I was doing for you through the internship that really provided me insight into a lot of firearms that I had not known were very popular in the Middle East. So, you know, I think for a lot of firearms enthusiasts, we think of like maybe two or three like general families of firearms that, you know, we know those are used in the Middle East. We know who's using them, or at least we think we know. So when I was doing U.S. sales data and I see this uh, really cool looking 22 long rifle um, survival rifle, I was like, well, I hadn't seen that before. So just from talking to the guy even that was just kind of a interesting happenstance you know he was very receptive to providing information to us he he wanted us to he wanted us to succeed in what we were doing so just from talking with him and getting all that information my interest was peaked into the AR7 platform um Coming originally from California, uh, and the AR-7, the original Armalite AR-7 being made in Costa Mesa, it was something that kind of struck close to home for me. So it was interesting to see it out in the Middle East. So there, there were a few things that really did pique my interest. You know, one, the history of it. You know, it's generally seen as a more American sporting kind of huntsman's rifle. And to see it out in the in in the Middle East used by the Israeli Air Force as a survival rifle was something I never thought I'd really see. But you know, now that I know a little bit more, it makes it makes sense during that period of time. So yeah, I mean, those are those are some of the things that really got me started on this project. And and you know, you know what's annoying about it is that it's it's so unofficial. I mean, it's not like we can, it's not like the, the IDF AR7 manual is readily available. We have to go fishing for this kind of stuff, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's even down to stuff like, well, did Israeli pilots and navigators, you know, they had the Beretta Model 70 beforehand and they had the AR7 in their disposal. And it's like, like trying to figure out, you know, some of this stuff. And, you know, when we were talking earlier with y'all, one of our other Israeli authors, um, you know, it's like we're trying to like brainstorm, like, 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 okay, why the Army Light, why the AR7, and why this mm -hmm. and the Phantom and some of the other jets as well, and 
trying to think on numbers and it's funny like we can get we can dive down into this too much and overanalyze things when probably some of the answers that we're looking for are like you know just a lot simpler more pragmatic of maybe you know you know stuff like the is the idf defense attache in the u.s at the in the 1960s knew someone at army light and got a good deal on them you know things are a lot more 100%. pragmatic and simpler than uh, than things they are but and that's annoying with in this case it's like we don't actually know we don't actually know more of the details about the adoption acceptance and sales processes and how many there are right a hundred percent yeah it's really interesting and it's you know as you said it's kind of it's kind of frustrating to have uh solid information that you know in this case you know the israeli the israelis did use this ar7 these are the modifications they made these were the plans they had them in and then you you had that first step in the right direction but then everything is just shrouded in you know mystery and government uh classification you know so it's it really does force you to do your own legwork um to find out all this stuff and that's why Salah reports awesome it's like you know you're forcing well not forcing us but you're allowing us to do that legwork so that other people will be able to you know if the if they have an Israeli AR7 they can go and look and say hey you know this this is what happened you know this might have been in like a um you know a phantom it might have been used as a training rifle you know all that so yeah you're totally right so tell us about what you found out the changes and the alterations and the variations from you know leaving the US into IAF service what were the alterations and changes and then going from IAF service um back to the US um to where it is today and how you know things get things get confusing here and you know it's especially in the US market we have this perception that like oh you have this rifle that's the rifle in its original form it's like you're actually dealing with several variations of that rifle from the very beginning when it left the factory you know when it was adopted later on through its service life when it came back and it had to be compliant with all these import laws and then other stuff that people are just adding on you know so it's like you know trying to find and you know collectors are always trying to find that nib that like that that rare like this is as it was as it left the factory and you start realizing more and more like wow that's why guys are trying to get at that more because there's so many variations of this stuff later on so what was the variational history of the ar7 yeah it's yeah. it's really been interesting uh especially doing serial number research for the article uh so originally coming out of costa mesa these look like they were late later numbered later model ar7s that they were sending out so um and we don't necessarily have any solid information on what they look like coming out of the costa mesa factory and being sent to israel but once israel got them so there, there were a few modifications they made to an already very compact weapon system so from from the muzzle to the the stock they replaced the front blade sight of the ar7's barrel with a um 
a car 98k front hooded sight so that was again you know one of the major differences that you can tell like okay that's not an american ar7 and it's you know all these are small little differences but they definitely make a big difference overall moving backwards the action of the rifle you know not changed very much from its stock configuration but you know when you get down to the hand the the pistol grip of the rifle you're going to see a FNFAL grip with a little rubber cap so that pilots could use the empty space inside that grip for either survival equipment or loose 22 LR ammo um, and or just whatever else they wanted to put in there so just again adding a little bit more space for the pilots to utilize and then from there you can definitely see that it's not a, a American AR7 they replaced the um, synthetic stock on the rifles with a collapsible wire stock that looks very cool actually um, I'm sure it's reminiscent of another historical firearm I just can't think of it right off the top of my head uh, but it was made the stock was made to hold two eight round magazines so that the pilot would be able to you know, store a bunch of additional ammunition for their flights, um, you know, back there. So they had it, they had two mags in the stock, they had one in the gun, and then they had a bunch of ammo, if need be, in their pistol grip. Uh, so definitely the Israelis know how to utilize space in, in small areas. And one of the last ones was that they included an Uzi sling uh with with the rifle to allow for ease of transport when you were out of the plane so those were the major ones that the israelis did and of course you know after all this was done i might you know they stamped it serialized it and sent it out um yeah so that that's all what the israelis did now when they were removed from service and re-imported back into the United States, uh, Brickley Trading Company, which was the company also out of California, which last I heard, I believe they were in the Bay Area, I think Oakland. But um, Brickley Trading Company would pin and weld a three-inch muzzle device on so that the overall length of the barrel came to 16 inches because in Israeli service, the barrels were also cut down to 13.5. So, and again, that just has to do with, we got to stick this in a survival kit and have it so it doesn't take up as much space uh, so we can, so we can fit other necessary items in. Yeah. So those are the things. And, you know, just one last thing on, the reimportation of the rifles, you know, especially nowadays when we get so many different imports back into the country, there's only so much you can do to an Israeli survival rifle to say, hey, look, we reimported an Israeli survival rifle and it still looks like one. You can't replace the stock. You can't replace the grip. You can't do all that stuff. So the only thing they probably could have done was that barrel or that muzzle device. Yeah.
Yeah. And there's one and there's one confusing thing, right, that we're still trying to figure out about the barrels. About the two barrels. It's this weird account yes. of the two barrels. Yeah. Right. It's um it's a doozy, that's for sure. That's that's probably an understatement right now for me, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, can you explain that? What we know so far and what might or might not be the case. Yeah. Yeah, I and again, this is something that we're I'm I'm struggling with and I'm I'm sure it was very confusing when you first heard about this cuz I had never heard of this. Um but apparently and you were in conversation so correct me if I I'm am wrong in what he said but apparently the AR7 had two separate barrels that were used um for for different purposes. So there would be the all steel barrel for training to train the pilots and air crews on how to use the firearm properly, how to be accurate, how to be efficient with it. But then when it came to missions, there was an aluminum barrel that was used in in the um in the actual survival kits or in actually issued to air crews. And just from my own research beforehand, it's very interesting to hear this because one, you know, this is like something completely new. No one uses aluminum barrels in guns. I mean, they're just, they're not long. Their their longevity is nothing, basically. <laughs> but um, the more I got to thinking of it, I was curious. Like, okay, maybe the barrel isn't completely aluminum. Maybe it's just to save weight or something to that effect. Uh, and you know, this is. This is not proven or anything like that, but the Mark 7 ejection seats, the survival kits in the ejection seat, um, they did have to meet like certain weight requirements to operate properly. So again, completely hypothetical, but it's, or completely theoretical, I should say, but maybe they, you know, replaced the barrel to save weight on something because they knew they wanted to put something else in, you know? like a radio or flares or water or something like that. Again, this is something that completely blew my mind when I heard it. So, and again, we're still wrestling through it. We're still trying to figure it out. But yeah, definitely something to <laughs> to consider about the uh, the Israeli use of the rifle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's just it's just like really annoying. It's like one of those research questions where it's like okay, this doesn't solve the problem. This creates more questions than answers. It's like, did you want to, yeah. and then, and then, you, you know, and then it goes back to like, okay, well, so you wanted to save weight. If you wanted to save weight, why didn't you just keep the Beretta model seventies exactly. or like, you know, you've got, I mean, you've got, you know, a 380 or a nine millimeter and some other Beretta variants or, you know, and it's like, you've got a, more of a cartridge there. Like, did you want a personal defense weapon? And then, and then it's like, well, do you want a survival rifle or like, like, what are you going to be, what the heck are you going to be eating for food in, in like, in, in the Golan yeah. or in the Negev? It's like, you're in the middle of a desert. It's like, what is there to eat for food? You got like, you got like squirrels running around the desert, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? So, I, so, and then, you know, there's that. And then you add into the, um, 
you add in stuff about Judaism about like shooting stuff, like certain animals are very, you know, you throw that component into it as well. It's like, and that's a real component to take into account here because there's the, mm-hmm. the IDF has, you know, there are chaplains who are rabbis who have very serious decision-making stuff. And they take that into account with pilots getting shot down. So it's like, it, it's still, it, it just still th- creates more questions and answers over like, okay, so now you have a steel barrel for training and now you have a, an aluminum, an aluminum encased, rifle a steel lined barrel yeah rifle lined yeah, barrel yeah. it's like you know i don't i don't know and then did they want and knowing the idf and the iaf being how um low budget both the services are um was the whole did the whole thing just harken back to we need a low budget rifle that's we can also use to defend ourselves so 22 caliber mm-hmm. like yeah we can get a lot of 22 long rifle right so the yeah. pilot you're pilot you're referring to um this guy um yossi yahari he contact i contacted him on facebook through an, to an idf group and he this is his i'm reading exactly what he wrote to me and unfortunately like he didn't want to he, he i asked him about the ar7 he told me what little what he knew about it from his point of view of carrying one and i was like well can you tell us more and he was like no that's all I know. That's all I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little annoying. Uh, I was like, I wish he could have told us more, but hey, we've got this snippet here, right? So his his exact words to me, he is, I was a phantom navigator in the IAF for 23 years, familiar with the rifle. We also conducted shooting training with the model with a steel barrel. And then in the rifle plane was with... Yeah, and then he writes down, apparently the reason was weight and price. So probably hmm. not just price, price of the of the weapon, but probably price of the ammunition as well, being in twenty two caliber, right? And then he goes, in the rifle, in the rifle plane, his English isn't the best here, so we're working with it. In the rifle plane was with two cartridges of bullets, and each cartridge seven bullets. So he probably means the magazines. For firing 14 bullets, an aluminum barrel was enough. A training rifle needed a steel barrel that was not damaged by the shooting. Hmm. And that's it. And then and then and then he says, and then he says, unfortunately, I have nothing more to add on the subject. As I've said, I do not speak English well. If you have any further questions, I can answer my correspondence here. And I asked him, yeah, and I asked him if he could come on and talk to us. And he said, like I said, I have no intention of talking on the phone. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but very, very nice guy. Very nice fellow. At least he answered these questions that we had about this. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, this gives the sort of like we've got, you know, we've got the field evidence of these rifles for sale in the U.S. We've got the we've got documentary, you know, we've got archival evidence. Um, you know, photography, documentary evidence of them in the IDF museum. And there's an Israeli navigator who was shot down in uh, Lebanon and they recovered one of his AR-7. His AR and we have evidence of the rifles being sold from Brinkley, right, to the U.S. But we don't have anything, we don't have very much in service apart from this one testimony, you know. So, yeah. It's, you and know. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, you know, it's you. You just said this earlier, and I, I would like, you know, I would like to remind the the audience, you know, this is a rifle that is bringing up more questions than it's answering. 
and every little bit bit of information we get that answers one question inevitably brings up something else so exactly yeah, it's, just, you know. it's interesting <laughs> It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting and annoying at the same time. It's like, wow, this yeah. cool, this cool little rifle. Tell me more. Okay, now yeah. I still don't know enough. I want more questions. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry Anyways, for interrupting you. Um, no, no, you're good. Um, would you? What are the prices for one of these today? Is it like I'm guessing? What are they around? Like from five hundred to eight hundred in the U.S. Yeah, actually, that that's a very very accurate, um, spot on guess. Uh, it does depend on the condition of the rifle. Um, a lot of the information that I'm gathering on serial numbers is from the online firearms auctions. Uh, you know, if I see one in a gun store, I'll definitely try and get information on it. It's just, again, these were extremely rare in the first place, and to see them in a firearms store is very very hard um especially when you're limited geographically but with that being oh. said oh yeah um with that being said like the higher end very clean very close to nib they'll they will run roughly like 800 you know a few years back that 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 is a few years back and you know the lower ends definitely will be going for you know four or five now we're seeing, you know, with the rise of all firearms and, you know, especially in the United States, there's the ammo, ammo shortage. Uh, so everything, you know, in a caliber that is easily attainable is, you know, just rising in price a little bit. So now we're seeing them and I, you know, I will have to double check this to make sure I'm giving the most up to date information, but I think. They are running around a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. Again, depending on condition, those are more new in box. Those are fired less. They are serial number matching. Uh, they have they have a bunch of accessories that came with the original reimports. You know, so. Yeah. 